even at a small company, I do think it's important to actually set goals. I think that's one of the things that I see sometimes people say, things we're changing all the time, what's the point of setting goals, setting plans? Because they're change anyway, so let's just do whatever. I actually feel it is important to set the goals and based on what you know at the time, to set actual objectives and set metrics and KPIs. Even though there's still a lot of uncertainty in the sense that given the way we're, we're growing, for example, at, at Felix, I don't actually know if you know a year from now we're we're going to grow by two hundred percent or two hundred fifty percent or maybe hundred fifty percent, right? Those things are uncertain, and I can't give certainty on that. But I do think it's important to set the goals of where we are. The first thing is it does actually give people a really good clarity of what we're trying to aim for. Welcome to this episode of Founder Vision. I am your host, Brian Gupton, and I'm joined today by Chief Product Officer Aaron Chang from Felix Health. How are you today, Aaron? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. Uh, that's great. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about what Felix Health does. Yeah. So Felix Health, we are, we're like to present ourselves as an integrated telehealth provider in Canada. And I think, you know, there with COVID, obviously, there's been a kind of myriad of a lot of different health providers looking at different solutions in different fields. And where we stand out a little bit is we aim rather than being kind of a primary kind of primary care telehealth where it's very horizontal, you go to us for anything you want, but we don't necessarily have to integrate it to kind of take care of all your needs. We try to be a lot more verticalized provider where for the categories that we offer, we try to provide an end-to-end -end holistic solution. And what that means right now for our categories is, for example, if you're online looking for a birth control or acne solution, in addition to just have our doctor kind of look after you, kind of assess your, your kind of actual symptoms, we also actually deliver the meds directly to you to provide that end-to-end -end care. And as we expand into more and more categories, we'll be looking to integrate things like therapy services lab work, diagnostics, and try to prevent an end-to-end -end holistic care in the particular categories where you're looking for treatments or looking for options. Interesting. So Felix is kind of like Amazon for prescription drugs and like lifestyle healthcare. No, no, yeah, definitely. That That's where we're starting. And I think what we recognize is, you know, the traditional healthcare model in, in Canada and the U.S. is you start with your primary care physician, and that's kind of your, your entry point into the healthcare system, which is great if you don't know too much, you just talk to one person. and that probably was great. It's always been. But nowadays, if you have come down with something, the first thing you probably do is Google it to find out a bit more what it is. You have some ideas or what it could be. And it's more about not so much about having a single entry point to everything, but it's more about getting better care through that whole system. So rather than having, you know, normally to deal with a, a primary care physician, maybe the pharmacy itself, a specialist, a separate lab, a therapist, where five or six different people who all do different things, they're sometimes connected, sometimes not. And depending on the luck of your draw, you may or may not get the best care. We try to take care of that holistically and offer that end-to-end -end service for the particular ailments that the patient has trouble with. Okay. And for listeners out there who are interested in checking you guys out, uh, what's your, your website? Yeah, you can go to Felix for you. So Felix, F-E-L-I-X for you dot C-A. And are, do you only currently serve Canada or are you also in the U.S.? We do currently only serve Canada. That's where we started at. And that's probably where we'll stay at. Healthcare being a very kind of a localized kind of problem to solve at different jurisdictions. So we are focused on the Canadian market. Okay. And so you're the chief product officer at, at, at Felix Health. What's been your career progression to, to get to that point? Yeah. So I'll say I'm someone who, you know, 
by by school. I so I started engineering program at University of Waterloo. But even in school, I kind of realized that I would have been okay, maybe a software or hardware engineer, but I wasn't going to be great at it. I didn't quite have the passion in terms of thinking through the technical side all the time. So even in school, I was exploring kind of other career path, and that's initially I stumbled upon a program management position at Microsoft, which was their combination of product as well as project management. Uh, I did a couple of internships there, kind of loved it. And my career has been in product ever since. I'll say first decade or so, probably in larger enterprises, a few years at Microsoft, then moved back to Toronto, a few years at IBM and doing that. And then maybe just about, I think in 2015 is when I went to work for my first startup, which was a, a retail sales kind of startup called, called Flip. And I kind of realized what I've been missing my whole life in terms of that startup environment, how fast it moved, you know, how much autonomy people had and just because, and, and just to focus on just, just getting stuff done and driving that really focused on doing what's right for our patient, doing what's right for our customers and really spending all your energy focused on that. Whereas the larger companies, honestly, I was spending maybe my 50% of my time focused on dealing with internal politics, internal kind of how do we split up revenue, move around resources versus kind of focus on the customer and the product. So that's kind of what I've been ever since. I, I've been at Flip, I've been at FinTech and about just over six months ago, I actually moved into the health tech space by starting FUX. Great. Well, so so I think a lot of um, you know listeners out there might be in a, a similar situation where mm-hmm. you know whether they work in product or not, but maybe they're working at an enterprise company and and you know they're interested in either starting their own startup or joining a startup. Can you elaborate a little more on what was the transition like and what were the things that stuck out the most to you from? a day-to-day job execution standpoint that were different when you moved from an enterprise company to an early stage startup? Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say like for someone who was purely in, in large enterprise before, it was a bit of cultural shock initially starting with starting with just really the pace. I'll say maybe that's the first thing that stood out in the sense that you know, a larger company, you know, you do your planning, you go through your whole cycle, you get some approvals, you move up the chain, and then you get approved, and then you can do some stuff. Whereas a startup, literally, there could be things where we, we talk to the leadership meeting in the morning, we announce the company wide in the afternoon, and then we go run and execute and, and do right. that thing. So the first thing that stood out was probably just the pace of it. And as a result of that, there's a lot more just autonomy. Of, we rely on people to make quick, fast decisions. There's a lot less kind of approval process through it. And you don't really have to get permission. In most cases, you don't have to get a lot of permission from other people. Try it, do it. If you fail, in most cases, it's not the end of the world and you move on to something else. Obviously, there is a flip side in the sense that there is a lot more change, right? You can't expect to do your annual or even your quarterly planning and expect that to stick for the whole quarter. You always learn new things, uh, new market dynamics come up, and there is that constant change. And I will say that's where, you know, for me personally, it, it was a refreshing for me, that constant change, that constant question of new things, and they really worked well for me in terms of what I was looking for. But I did see other people who came in from larger companies, larger banks, and it actually wasn't for them. It, it had too much uncertainty. They preferred the kind of day-to-day uncertainty, what they were able to do. And they tried for a few months, and they realized it's not for them, and they moved back to enterprise shop, which, which is totally fine. It really just depends on the person's kind of the orientation, what they're looking for in, in that space. It's funny, you know, a lot of times if you read like Glassdoor reviews on like an early stage startup, a common theme is that this this place is so disorganized. I always, when I read things like that, always makes me think like, I wonder if this person is coming from like a really big company and, you know, like, because there's just a certain amount of chaos that, you know, if you're working at an early stage startup, especially you have to be comfortable with, or, you know, things are going to feel disorganized and in part, 
in a way they are, you know, disorganized, but the best startups are kind of organized chaos. How do you approach your job with that in mind? And how has that affected the way you've built teams or the types of, of people that you've, um, um, you know, brought on? Totally. And I think it starts with maybe just a mindset kind of shift a little bit, because what I always try to tell people with startup is like, there is clarity and there's certainty. And I will say, as a startup, as a company, the goal is to provide clarity in terms of, you know, even though things can change all the time, ultimately, it is up for me to, and the leadership team to find, you know, what kind of company do we want to be? Where do we eventually want to go? And giving people that clarity, how we get there, there's a lot of uncertainties and there's a lot of starts and stops and there's a lot of kind of different things. And I'll say, yeah, definitely. I've, I've had cases where engineer comes up to me and say, hey, how come the requirements are changing? I'm like, yes, requirements do change. We learn new things about customers and things change. So how we the path along the way, there will be a lot of changes and a lot of start and stops and we kind of need roadblocks and have to change things around. But that clarity, what we want to be as a company and the eventual goal we want to reach, that's there. And that's kind of North Star where people can drive towards. Whereas in the larger companies, you have a bit more certainty in the sense that you know what's going to happen three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, because that plan is kind of in a set. If you're if you're annual planning, you're going to hire five people, you can hire five people, irrespective of how good or bad the business is. And there's a lot more certainty in your day-to-day, but not necessarily clarity because a lot of companies are trying to figure out growth and things like that. So while there's maybe appearance of day-to-day certainty, you actually don't get the long-term clarity, whereas I actually feel in a startup, there's a lot more long-term clarity because that vision is there and that's the vision that drives the company forward, even though there's a bit less day-to-day certainty. And it does require people to kind of shift their mindset and be okay was that some people thrive in that environment, like I did. And like I said, there's people who doesn't, there's there's no right or wrong or anything like that. It is really some people just going to a startup that that is something to get signed up for because something it feels like, hey, join a startup, you know, be a unicorn in a few years. It sounds great. You get all this autonomy, you make a huge impact, you see your share prices go up. That all that could be true, but there is the other side of it as well. And you just have to be the right person to the right mindset to be able to get the most out of it. Right, right. Would you have any like practical day-to-day advice for, you know, that things that you've either implemented that's, you know, part of your sort of regular cadence of things you do with, with your team to manage that and keep people focused on the goals, even if those goals are constantly changing? No, I do think, you know, even at a small company, I do think it's important to actually set goals. I think that's one of the things that I see sometimes people say, you know, Things we're changing all the time. What's the point of setting goals, setting plans? Because they're change anyway. So let's just do whatever. I actually feel it is important to set the goals and based on what you know at the time to set actual objectives and set metrics and KPIs. Even though there's still a lot of uncertainty in the sense that, you know, given the way we're, we're growing, for example, at, at Felix, I don't actually know if, you know, a year from now we're, we're going to grow by 200% or 250% or maybe 150%, right? Those things are uncertain and I can't give certainty on that. But I do think it's important to set the goals of where we are. The first thing is it does actually give people a really good clarity of what we're trying to aim for. Just because the decision you make, if you're trying to grow, let's say 100%, 200% year over year, that's very different from the decisions you will make if you're only growing 5% or 10%. Every year, just how you think about decisions and maybe some of the risk taking is, is very different. So I do make sure that even though there's still a lot of uncertainty with things, set clear goals of what we'd like to achieve next year and setting those goals in place. I think the second thing that that really helps was it really gets the team to get in the mindset of we do need to measure our results. That's the other thing sometimes you kind of kind of forget is there's a lot of uncertainty. So we're just trying things. So let's not worry too much about the results because we don't know anyways. And this is a guessing game and it's a huge hypothesis. That is true at the time. 
But I do think it's still very much important for people to just get in the habit of setting goals. Even though you're saying, you know, I'm launching this new product first time. I have a little bit of customer research, but I really have no idea how many customers use this. So how do I set a revenue goal or adoption goal? But I do think, you know, based either on top down or bottom up, it is important to set a goal on it. The point is not so much that you're going to hit those goals, but the point is that you at least have a point of reference to measure against. And then once you actually launch it, whether you do better or worse than that goal, at least you know that, hey, I did better. What assumptions was, was changed? You know, what are the things I assumed before wasn't true because now I'm doing better or worse? And that really caused you to kind of do that rigor and do that analysis and really sets you in the habit of actually thinking about results and driving towards it. Whereas if you just think, first time releasing it, it's crapshoot anyways. I have no idea. Let's just not bother and then launch it and see how it goes. You'll never get in the habit of actually setting those goals and measuring and you know driving towards results. Right, right. Yeah, sometimes it's good to measure inputs when outputs are kind of impossible to know, right? So like an input might be, you know, number of active users. And then that may or may not, you know, translate uh, to revenue at a certain point. But, you know, it can definitely be a a KPI that especially for product teams, you know, you need people using a product to better understand how to, to evolve that particular product. I am curious a little bit. Of, you know, so in most startups, the founders are sort of the de facto uh, product team to get going. At what stage do you think it, it makes sense for a startup to start building out a product team? No, that, that's a great question. I would say that's something that does vary both on a combination of you know, the company culture and, frankly, the founder's background and expertise. As well, and I do think it's one of those things where it starts with the founders kind of recognizing the need. Because yes, in almost all companies, essentially the founders are the first product managers. It's their vision of what the product should be. They start with, and normally at some point when the company is ready to kind of scale and go to the next level, is when they think about kind of I'm going from maybe one product to second product, and maybe I have one product, I have a little bit of product market fit. How can I grow and scale that point forward? That's typically when a a company's founder will start thinking about that, but it does require a certain level of buy-in from the company to be willing to do that. And one of the things, like I've had product managers who, younger junior product managers, they're like, I want to join a startup, but I want to make sure that company has the right culture, right? Will product managers actually get in power to make decisions or are they just there to be essentially glorified product managers where you know the founder says, we're going to do this and then the product managers goes and write out the tickets and work with the devs to get it done. And I tell them, you know, it is very important to look at that leadership team within a startup. Typically, if you think about the first few hires a, a founder would make, you know, if it's a B2B, they will hire a head of sales, probably head of marketing, a CTO. Those will be the first few hires. I'm like, you know, do they have a product manager, a product leader within their senior leadership team? And do they put importance on that? If you see, you know, there's a CTO and then there's a director of product, then I'm like, that feels asymmetrical and they're probably looking, just looking for a product manager to do more project management at that point. And that may not be the product culture you want to actually join. But if they do have, they do have a VP product, they do have a CPO where a product is at the leadership table kind of making those decisions, then at least there's more organizational buy-in for the need for a product. Because products are one of those things where I'll say product marketing are probably the two functions where we probably get questioned the most because everyone has opinion on what marketing we're running and what product we're building. And everyone's entitled to that opinion. And it's not like technology where, you know, there's a certain kind of expertise where people, if CTO says this is hard, people will say, okay, that's hard. Uh, People live with it. Whereas product and marketing, you do get a lot more questions. So it does require that overall company level buy-in to understand kind of the value 
of that product. And that's probably continuous buying and evangelization to really get everyone aligned to move forward on that. So you bring up a good point. So for if I'm a founder and I, you know, I've 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 launched my startup, I've got a little bit of, of traction. How do I know? Like what what are what are the signs that I should be thinking about making that first product higher or, you know, building out, um, starting to build out that product team and like what should be, uh, what should founders be looking for in that first product hire? Yeah. So I think in terms of like readiness, it really depends on, you know, how far has the company scale? I would say, you know, it's hard to place exactly maybe a revenue or headcount, but once you starting have, let's say, more than one engineering team, like you have your initial product, you have like maybe a few engineers working on it. Once you get expanded beyond maybe a few engineers, you realize, hey, I need to do more than one thing now at a time. And I have a little bit of initial product market fit. So I'm seeing. So once you starting having that complexity now where you have to have more than one team, where you may have to kind of focus on not just on growth, maybe think about retention as well and you get starting both sides that's where uh, typically i'll say maybe the point where you'll want to bring on board a product manager on it in terms of you know the typical profile of that product manager it really also depends on kind of you know organization wise you know what's what else is there i'll say in the very minimum any product manager bringing on to be the first product manager startup ideally i want that person to have an experience of being able to scale so I would say someone who had experience being at least at director level and the company who's kind of seen a little bit of how does a product team scale from maybe one to five to 10 and has seen some of that personal growth. They may not be the person who's directly responsible for that, but at least they've seen it through that stage and know what it looks like for that scaling and scaling from kind of one to too many. Obviously the right startup mindset and understanding that, you know, as the first product hire, you can be bombarded from all sides. With different requests and being able to kind of deal with the personalities, build alignment, very important. Someone who just not think about, you know, what we should do as a product, but how do you actually communicate, evangelize that product within the organization and get that buy-in? That's super important for that first product hire to kind of introduce product as a new thing. Because some people may just see product as overhead for the organization not realizing it because, you know, marketing say, you know, before product, I just go to have an engineer say, hey, we need to do this. And then the engineer does it, right? That feels a lot more efficient. Whereas a product manager now, you know, you may need to create tickets, justify who's the user, why we're trying to do all those things. So if someone who's not able to kind of communicate and evangelize the benefits of that, it may just feel overhead and you're slowing down the organization. So it's very important for that first product hire, someone who's able to work very much cross-functionally, a great communicator, and able to work with a different team to evangelize and really drive that value of product. As a founder, how do I know if I need a product manager or a project manager? And a lot of times in an early stage startup, Mm, a product manager is probably going to do both of those. How how do I know that I'm I'm hiring the right skill set at that early stage? So I would say the first thing is to think through, like, I would say, while, you know, product manager is a fairly recent hot profession, like, there's no shame to say, I don't, for a founder to say, I don't need a product manager. I just need a project manager to get me organized and get through the next hub. That's totally fine. Just be honest about it. But if you're looking for a product manager is really, you have to be willing to let go and let them make decisions and drive teams. So if I'm hiring a product manager, I know that I'd be comfortable as even myself as, as a CPO to say, I'm going to give the ownership of this particular metric, which is important to my business, to that product manager. I'm going to give that product manager a team, and I'm going to empower that product manager to make decisions to drive that metric forward. 
if I'm not comfortable doing that, then I probably shouldn't be making that higher. And the same thing with the founder, right? A founder needs to say, hey, you know, retention, I know it's important. I'm willing to hire someone to say, hey, you're accountable for retention. You know, at 30% right now, I need to boost to 40%. You go and make that happen. Obviously, there's still kind of check and balance in place, but you have to feel comfortable kind of delegating that responsibility onto that person. Because if you're not, and you're just going to overlook their shoulders, or you're going to be meddling all the time on it, then you mean as well just have, you're the product manager in that case. You mean as well just hire a project manager to help you manage the day. Right. And, and what should be the relationship between product design and product management? at an early stage startup? Definitely working hand in hand. Like I think I've always been organizations where both product design and product management can roll under me, but I don't think it needs necessarily needs to be that case. I think product design and product management can be kind of parallel organizations, but it does require a very close relationship. And why I build out the teams, I always have a team that includes a product manager, a designer and a team of engineers and focus on a single metric. So I do think it's important to have almost that one-on-one relationship for each team. You have a product manager as well as a product designer and, and they'll work very much together, uh, figuring out, kind of doing a lot of user research, fleshing out stories, fleshing out designs and working together. And obviously there's cases where, you know, there's overlap in the sense that some product manager maybe have a bit more design background. They'll fill in a little bit of design here and there as needed. And also vice versa, where product design can help flesh out a lot of requirements and help product management through a lot of those things. So I do think at, especially an early part of organization where you may not have a lot of resources, it is important for product manager and product design to be able to work kind of symbiotically working together and then to really understand the user and understand the market. Right. And one, one of the challenges, of course, when you're joining a, a product team with an early stage startup, often you're not going to have like experience in that specific industry. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, one of the, the huge value adds that a product person can bring to, to the table is when they really do intimately know uh, an industry and, you know, they, they, they kind of have experience with, you know, what are the challenges that particular customer base is or user base is is likely to face if you don't have that kind of industry experience and you, mm-hmm. and you join a startup how do you accelerate getting that knowledge so that you can be you know more effective and make you know more impactful decisions i think i'm always the proponent to hire journalists where like i much rather people who have transferable product management experience rather than necessarily kind of industry specific knowledge like i went from basically enterprise cloud to retail e-commerce to fintech to now health tech. I do think maybe one area that where it does require a little bit of expertise is, you know, selling to enterprises, selling to consumers are different kind of fields in product management. And there are kind of different skill sets. I do think there's a little difference there of someone who's very used to kind of driving a consumer business. It'll probably be a fairly large shift if they're starting working enterprise because they have to deal with the sales team and, and the details there. So I do think there is a bit of differences there, but otherwise, you know, right now we're a consumer business. I've just been generally hiring people who have general good consumer product experience or rather necessarily someone who's particular in the health tech field. I do think most of the skills are transferable in terms of, you know, doing your work of being able to research a market, talking to users, understanding user dynamic, being able to use the product and just doing interviews and, and just deeply understanding that research skill, that's kind of applicable irrespective of what industry you're in. And then obviously being work cross-functionally, working with the tech team, working with cross-functionally with marketing, all those things, that's transferable irrespective of where your industry is. I think in terms of going in and learning, I think it starts with being humble. 
right? Just like understand that you're new into the industry. There are a lot of people who know way more than you and just not being afraid to say, hey, I'm new to this. I don't quite understand how this works. Like, can you explain to me why this works? And I think one of the good things about it is you almost bring a lot of fresh set of eyes into a lot of maybe some older industries and you can actually learn a lot of, does it actually make sense? In some cases, you know, some things may appear like doesn't make sense in the surface, but then once they, people explain you like, oh yeah, that makes sense now because of certain regulation, because of certain kind of things you don't know about. But there's plenty of other cases where you ask that question and people are like, huh, that's the always, that's how things are done. There's no good reason for it. And then that's where you find opportunities to actually change and evolve that and realize, you know, there's probably regulation written in the 60s for something that totally isn't applicable anymore. And that's where you can push the envelope and really drive that forward. So I do think having that pressure that eyes, and as long as you're going being humble in the sense that you don't go in and thinking, you know, I'm in tech, I know this better. So therefore, I'm just going to go in and start changing things. That's not the right way either. But at the same time, you know, being able to ask those questions and objectively kind of question of, does this actually make sense in the current context, given the current technologies? And that's how you can find opportunities to kind of really make profound improvements. Right. When you joined Felix, what what stage were they at? Like how, how big was the team? Where where were you guys at from like a user base and, and revenue model? And how did that that the stage that they were at when you were joined, how, how did that impact your kind of strategy that first three months, you know, getting getting up to speed and, and figuring out, you know, what how to define your role and prioritize um, the product tasks. Yeah. So Felix, when I joined, they were just a few months after their series A. Uh, it was a team about just over 20 at the time we joined. We're, we're about probably close to 50 right now. So I joined a time where they were really looking to grow and really scale into the, into the next phase. Are you the first product hire? We had a we had an associate product manager, but I was so I was actually the first leadership hire into the team where we had the founders and a whole bunch of engineers and support, and then I was the first leadership hire bringing into kind of looking at how we can scale the business forward. I think whenever I go to a place, I never go in was assuming that I can just apply what I learned in my previous stops and just apply it wholesale here because I always see it as a company is successful for for, for a reason. I want to come in and help it grow and scale, but at the same time, I don't want to kind of you know, destroy what was made the company special in the first place. So for me, whenever I go into a stop, irrespective of what stage they're at, I always want to take a little time and learn and understand, you know, what's working well and what's not working well. And a lot of talking to people. And I always find that in a lot of cases, it's a progression where at certain state at different stages, a company needs different things. But if you apply something that's maybe too early and not where the company isn't ready, even if it's the right thing eventually, it's not going to get the buying you need. And only when the company maybe feels a pain in certain spots and then you apply the solution, that that's when it works. Because otherwise, it'll just feel like, you know, you're just adding in more process or adding in more, more things to slow things down. So I do think it's important to come in, be humble about it, observe. You're not there to kind of rip up the whole, all your processes, all their strategy. You're there to learn to figure out you know, what works, but where are things that's not working. And usually, you know, some of the things that doesn't work is, you know, providing a bit more clarity, strategic direction of, you know, you know, we may know what we want to do in the next three months, but a year from now, two years, three years, where the things we actually want to do, providing that kind of North Star and clarity of the organizational direction. That's usually something that's missing. Um, the second thing is, you know, from a process perspective, how do we scale from one team to two teams to three teams? That's another typical problem that I saw at, at Flip, at Coho, at Felix of how do you actually scale that and have a repeatable process across teams and kind of having given each team clear mandates of what they need to drive towards. So those are probably common scaling problems that most companies have, but it is important to come in first, you know, 
few weeks and months to to listen, figure out what's going wrong, and then get a quick win under belt. I do think it is also important while to listen for you to establish that credibility. If you just go in as a product to, to talk about, you know, user research, understanding users and all those things, which are great. But if you just be all about talk without actually driving a result, a win, pretty soon people will kind of lose interest in that because you'll see someone who just all theory. So it is important for you to kind of listen to people, identify a quick problem area, drive towards a quick result, ship some things that actually delivers value to the users, value to the company, build that credibility. And then you can use that to kind of build more things on top of it. Yeah, let me dig in a little bit. You you mentioned scalable product processes. Hmm. Like what are some examples of product processes and and you know and what are the most important ones to kind of get going, you know, when you when you first join a, a startup? Yeah, I think the two things I would like to call out. The first thing is usually people ask, you know, how do you actually build your roadmap and strategy and what's that process look like and what know how do you actually do that out and i always whenever i start i always create essentially two separate stacks one is defining what we want to do and the steps i go through there is kind of work with the team to figure out starting with objectives where we want to go and that's kind of the north star where you really need to work with the founders to figure out what you want to go and that really defines what you want to do and example i always give is if you like at Zoom, maybe two years ago, before COVID started, their objectives probably grow, 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 grow. And every company, every their team is figuring out how do we grow faster and do more. But as soon as COVID hit, maybe three months after that, their objective probably totally changed into, you know, we have all these security problems. We have all these scaling problems. Now it's no longer about growth. It's about how do we fix those security? How do we fix those scale? And because the objective change, the team's roadmap, strategy, all that kind of change along with it. So starts with defining a clear objective of what do we actually want to do. Second, it is important to understand the context, which kind of details, you know, where have we been? What's the company good at? You know, have we solved this problem? What are the things that's unknowns? What are the things that's known? So setting the context. And then from there, you can build out your actual strategies, kind of your big rocks of what are the few key things you need to do to get to where you want to go. So see as context where you are, objective where you want to be, strategy is the path, and then you can figure out individual tactics as the kind of small projects. And that defines kind of what you want to do. But then in parallel, you have to think through how you're actually going to get there. And this is where I build something, um, essentially uh, PSP, which is people system process, where you start to define, you know, to do all the things we want to do now to implement that strategy, what are the people we need? What are the expertise we need to do that? What are some of the processes we need to kind of adapt to be able to do that? And then system, probably the last thing of, do we need new tooling, new system to do that? And once you kind of build that out, you have a pretty cohesive plan for the team of, you know, here's what we want to do and here's how we're going to do it. Here's the hiring we need. Here's our big strategies. Here's the big roadmap items. And that really gives company a lot of clarity of, you know, and irrespective of how small or big that company is, it really gives them a lot of clarity of you know, what the company would do. And that process doesn't have to take long. Like you can pretty much do something like on a small scale, a few weeks to define you know, next three months, six months, what that's going to be. And then you iterate that process through your quarterly kind of annual planning. Right. Process. So the product people out there who are listening in are, are, are probably scratching their heads and saying, you know, these guys are 30 minutes into this conversation and they haven't talked at, at all yet about uh, actually speaking with customers. So <laughs> like, I, I would be remiss if we didn't broach that. Of course, yeah. Because, yeah. You know, obviously I'm sure that's, that's one of the first things that you do as well. And it, what, what does that part look like? And, and what are some best practices in your experience for someone, you know, in product, just joining a startup, 
um, you know, to go about getting that feedback and, and um, creating that, you know, in a systematic way. Yeah, I think the first thing I always recommend about when doing, I mean, it is a critical part of the discovery process and understanding kind of what products you build. But I think it's important to understand, you know, what it is and what it isn't. I think customers are great at digging into understanding the problem they have, but don't count on customers to give you the solution. So what I mean by that is you can go with customer, understand what their problem is, but they're not going to give you the solution or they may give you solutions. But if you just implement kind of what they say they want it, that probably won't actually solve their problem because right. people have an idea. Either way, just, so don't treat it as, you know, you need to go talk to customers for everything. Customer give you that feedback, you synthesize that, and then that's what you're going to build. I mean, it's possible that will work out, but in most cases, that probably doesn't. So you have to go in with the mindset that I'm here to really understand what are the customer pain points because you're not, you may or may not be the target market for the for the product you're building, but you have to understand what that target market is and what are the actual exact pain points they're experiencing. And once you kind of understand their pain points, then it's there's a lot of kind of market research, ingenuity, working with the team to figure out what's the actual solutions that solve their problem. And you have to decouple the two. So you almost have to kind of you know filter based on the customer feedback because they may say, I want A. And you really have to peel back to say, why do you want feature A? Like what's the problem you actually have? And then you may end up building product A, but you probably end up building like product F because that's actually the thing that will solve their problem. So it is very important to go in with that mindset. Uh, the second thing is, you know, customer discovery and customer understanding, it's a very gradual thing in the sense that you never have a perfect understanding of the customer and customer will change over time. So don't wait until it's, so I don't have a hard and fast rule to say, you must talk to X number of customers before you can you know, design the product and build the product. Anything's better than nothing. So go talk to as much as you can, but don't let that block you from making progress and learning because the more things you build and getting things in front of customers, the more you'll learn from that. And it's just a continuous process. You're never done on that, but don't wait you know, to assume you have X amount of customer feedback before you're willing to go and start and do something because especially in your startup, action is important. And a lot of times it's about trying new things, getting in front of customers and going through that loop. And if you're just waiting for the perfect amount of feedback, you never actually get there to building the product itself. Yeah. So years ago, there weren't really a lot of tools that were specifically designed and built to help facilitate the product management mm -hmm. role. Are there any tools that you're using today that that you find um, you know, super valuable to, to, to helping you in your kind of day-to-day -day job, whether that's managing or establishing like, you know, internal processes or, you know, getting feedback from users or, you know, anything, any, any particular tools that, that you rely yeah, on? Yeah. So I think the two that we use a lot is user research, uh, com, which is, uh, which is a user testing service that I've used at all my stops, really used for design team where, you know, it's very easy. They handle the recruiting of of basically potential people to try out your product. They'll record a video of people actually going using it. You can send them a script. And what I find it useful is they're great for testing your own product, but they're actually great for testing competitive products out there where you ask users to try out a competitive product and you actually learn, you know, what to implement it, whether it actually works or not. Because sometimes it is very easy for us to say, hey, our competitor just lost feature A and that looks great. And everyone's like, how can we get feature A out the doors? fast as possible. And sometimes that is a great feature, but sometimes it may not be. So I actually use it great to do a lot of competitive testing and understand how our competitive feel, how our customer actually feel about a competitive product and what actually works or not. Another tool that we recently used, I think they recently rebranded to call Sprig. And that's a tool to our website to kind of have a lot of intercepts to get real-time user feedback of, you know, why are they abandoning at certain points in our flow and really kind of understand. I mean, we have the 
quantitative data to see, you know, what's the drop off on this question, which is nice to have that data, but to really understand the why behind it, we use that as a kind of impromptu on-site surveying tool to really understand a lot of the, the user motivations. And that's just integrated into your your yeah into our web app, basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else? Those are the two probably on the customer side, and we use the typical kind of a lot of analytics tools like Mixpanel. We use Looker Analytical, but we have our typical analytics stack to actually look at the quantitative data uh, as well to supplement the qualitative kind of user feedback. And I'm curious, like, what, what what's your release cycle there now? Are you guys like following like a, a agile development processes, or have you morphed that into something? We are pretty much like it is almost I would say continuous delivery. Like we we run two week sprints, but we ship whenever the ticket is ready and and it goes out. And because we're web, we were afford to do that. In the past, when we had app, because of the app store limitations, we typically run a two to three week release cycle. Or on the web, basically, we we pretty much push out code every day. And you know, you guys are post Series A, so obviously, you're a, a big part of that stage is is scaling up teams. What are some you know of the challenges that uh, you run into? And I, I don't just I don't mean like hiring people, but that what are some of the things that start to break as teams get larger? I, I think, well, COVID and definitely has presented challenges. Like this is the first job where I started remotely. I think even in the past, like I've worked with remote teams, but it's always mostly people who work close in the office. And then we have one or two people who are remote and you kind of assimilate them into the team's culture at that point. I feel like, you know, I started remote. I've never met anyone I work with except for a couple of maybe social events. And I would say maybe 90% of the company has never been in an office before. So I'll say culturally, it's definitely been a challenge. And just even asking the question of how do we actually even build a team culture now, given that we see them so rarely. I remember like a few of my thing, founders asking, you know, how, how's the team doing? I'm like, I think they're doing well. But honestly, I don't know because I see, you know, Every day I meet them for one or two hours. I see they seem to be doing fine, but I don't really see them the other six to seven hours that where they're off doing their work. And I don't actually know how well they're doing during those times. So it is it is a guessing game and you're trying to kind of extrapolate based on the interaction you have with them to see how they're doing holistically. So I think that's definitely been kind of a unique kind of COVID challenge where we'll probably, given the situation, we'll probably stay kind of at least hybrid in terms of we'll always have a remote option. So how do we kind of evolve, evolve and scale that once we do move back in office? That, that's the big challenge. Second thing is horizontally, as we kind of grow the organization, have more and more teams, how do we still have enough touch points where people are aligned, but also each team having the autonomy of being able to drive towards their own goals, but not stepping on each other's toes? And how do we actually structure the teams along the way to kind of minimize the stepping toes, the probability of stepping toes, but also ensuring that they're in line, they know what's going on, and we're still operating as one company driving towards a single goal. That's usually been the, the typical scaling challenge we always have. Excellent. Well, Aaron, we're, we're just about out of time today, and this has been a fantastic dis- discussion. Um, I, I guess the last question I'd have for you, and, and less a, of a question and more of a opportunity for, for listeners out there who might be interested in checking out Felix Health you know, maybe joining the team. Mm-hmm. What are some of the selling points on um, either joining that team or, or or maybe coming on and joining your, your team specifically? Yeah, I think the big selling point is definitely if you look at, I would say healthcare is one of those industries, especially for Canada. I think from the outsiders looking inward, it's like Canadians, you have free healthcare, you know, what do you guys want? It seems really good. But I think 
through COVID, through this, people realize, you know, there's a lot of issues in terms of healthcare system breaking, the legacy system, how short staff we are, you know, how many people, you know, Canada being a large immigrant nation, like we have anywhere from five, 10 million people who just didn't have access to primary care. And all those kind of problems are exacerbated through the COVID problem. And that's a problem that can only be solved through technology, through a lot of the kind of advance we made. So I would say it starts when people solving a really big, important problem. While you can probably work in any company and make some customers happy and obviously grow the company and grow revenue, all of that, I would say Phoenix Health, we're we're solving in a space where if we're successful as a company, that means we're making tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Canadians making their health lives actually better. And I'll say that's probably a bit more meaningful. And the altruistic side of people feeling good about kind of what you do actually matters and actually helping people through. So that's probably the big thing of, you know, talent is tight. There are a lot of people who probably have a lot of options, but if you want to work somewhere where it's really meaningful, where, you know, you're still building a product, you're still writing code, or you're still kind of interviewing users in the end of the day, but ultimately the result and impact you can have I would say it's been more magnified, especially through the current times right now. So I'll say that's probably the big selling point in terms of the impact you can actually make to people's daily lives. Excellent. Aaron, it's been great. For listeners out there, check out felix4u.ca. And we will see you next time. Sounds great. Great chatting. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.